If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Bow for prayer. Father, we are so grateful that you are the one that does hold us fast. Father, you are the one that not only has saved us, but you are the one, Lord, that keeps us saved. We thank you, Father, for your continued involvement in our life and that you will never leave us alone. And Father, we ask as we continue our worship of you this morning, as our thoughts turn to you and who you are and all that you've done. Father, we also turn to those things that you have said, those things that you have preserved for us in your word, that, Father, that we may read, that we may think, that we may study, that we may understand those things that you would have us to understand and to know, that, Father, our lives would be transformed by your word to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to work in us, that you would not give up on us, that, Father, you would continue to change us into what you would have us to be. And as always, Father, we ask that you would bless our time in your word, knowing, Lord, that this time will be beneficial and profitable to us. We do thank you for it and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it reads, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you, maybe many of you, are familiar with 1 Corinthians and that we understand that when you read through that letter, that Paul is having to correct many of the difficulties and problems that they were having in this church. Uh, It was a very troubled church. A lot of things were going on that uh, should not have been going on, even though there were some good things about it. Uh, Paul is having to write, in a sense, a pretty heavy letter. I want to give you maybe a better understanding of why that church was going through the difficulties that it was going through. And part of that is because of where where the church was, which was in the city of Corinth. Corinth is... uh, it was a city that I guess if you could take Los Angeles and San Francisco and Las Vegas and roll them all into one, that's what's going on there. And I, I, know, I know that those of us on the east, especially in the south, have a lot of negative views <laughs> towards the difficulties in those places. But that's kind of the idea of what was taking place there. Corinth, in a sense, kind of like our country, knew a lot about religions. All kinds of religions were there and were being practiced. It was pluralistic in every way. In fact, they they did attach a a premium to the fact that they accepted all religious views. Kind of like our society is today. There are those who kind of of boast about the fact that they, that they, they don't really have any prejudices against other religions, as if somehow to to think that something might be wrong means that you're prejudiced, because it doesn't mean that. But there are those who, who kind of you know, assert this idea that we, we, we welcome everyone. And we do welcome everyone in our country. That's not a bad thing. Uh, but again, there's this idea that we don't really think about what it is the individuals might pursue as far as their religion. We, 
we'll say that there's many paths to God. There isn't, but there are those who, who pride themselves in, in saying that, believing that that is the only path to somehow letting everyone know that they are welcome and that they're all the same. We do need to remember that this, plural, this pluralistic view that they had in Corinth and the one that we have in our country, it does enable Christianity to thrive. People from different countries and, and from the countryside had gathered together in this cosmopolitan city. And so as a result, they were kind of moving away from their ancient homelands, from their cultures. And so they, they tend to be much more open in these cities to new ideas and to new values. This city boasted a, a, of having an outdoor theater that, a, that accommodated about 20,000 people. Uh, they held uh, some athletic games there. Uh, the most well-known is the Olympic Games that were held over in, in Greece, but they had some games called the Isthmus Games, and they were very well-known for that. They had an indoor theater that could seat 3,000 people. Uh, they had a Greek-Roman, and some would call it an Oriental population. It was said that when it comes to the taverns on the south side of the marketplace, um, there were taverns everywhere. It didn't matter where you were, you could find a place basically to go and drink. Uh, Corinth was noted for being very, very sinful in every way. They said that every single shop in the city, regardless of what they were selling, had its own deep spring-fed well in which they could contain or they could place coolers of wine and keep them cool. It was said that all the people of Corinth gorged themselves. In fact, it was even customary that when it came to watching plays that uh, it was not unusual for some of the actors to come on stage drunk as they acted out their, uh, their parts. The title of the message this morning, the word is there in your bulletin, which is Corinthizomai, uh, uh, that is the Greek word, which simply means uh, a Corinthian, and it came to mean to commit fornication. You, know, you would say that about somebody, some individual, and that meant that that individual was committing fornication. Paul preached at the city of Corinth around A.D. 53. He was there for about 18 months. Uh, he also paid Corinth a short second visit uh, sometime between 54 and 57 A.D. Um, he uh, speaks of intending to go there a third time on his third journey. Uh, and that coincides with the book of Acts in chapter 20. He did spend three winter months in Corinth in the late uh, 57 or early part of 58 AD. And of course, it was then that he wrote the letter to, uh, to the Romans. Again, sin abounded in this cosmopolitan city of Corinth. The Corinthians were intrigued by Greek philosophy. They were captivated by the disciplined training of athletes and athletic events. At one time, they said the city was home to 12 very large major pagan temples. Uh, the people did desperately need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. They desperately needed to hear about the one who was crucified for sinners. They had a special worship ceremony that was carried out by the temple prostitutes that was connected with the temple of Aphrodite. Um, there would be a big gathering up there, and then these 1,000 prostitutes would descend on the city. On the city, and, and it was very, very well known that would take place, and prostitution, those types, types of things, was practiced very openly. Uh, nobody was ashamed of that. That was just part of city life, and uh, everyone just kind of tried to get along really well um, with each other. And so uh, these prostitutes were out there trying to earn money for the temples and the priests and the various uh, pagan temples that they served, but especially that one. It is said about the Corinthians 
uh, I found this quote. The Corinthians ate well, satisfied their sexual urges without condemnation, flirted with the wisdom of men, and did all they could to keep their bodies as beautiful as those of the Greek gods. They loved to listen to great orators. It is said that the population of the city of its, its actual citizens was about 250,000 people. However, almost every individual owned a couple of slaves. So the population of the city was probably somewhere between 700 and 800,000 people. So it was a good-sized city, to say the least. And so uh, in a discussion of Corinth, you could ask the question, so what, what did they need? I mean, they had all these things going on, all these things to keep people busy and keep them pursuing whatever they wanted to pursue. Well, again, they needed freedom. They needed freedom from sin and death. And God met that need by blocking Paul at every hand on his second missionary journey until he received what we call the Macedonian call, and he went and he helped them. After establishing the Corinthian church, uh, Paul then, we believe, went to Ephesus. He stayed there for three years, and that was where he wrote this letter that we're going to be looking at. Again, in summary, the Corinth, Corinth was a city... Uh, that had a very prevalent pagan influence, a plethora of perversions. But again, despite these apparent obstacles to the gospel, the Spirit of God enabled Paul to plant a church in the center of vice and idolatry on his second missionary journey. And that's what kind of makes this city unusual, or this church unusual, is this city was pagan in every way. Just the worst city you can imagine. And God wanted Paul to plant a church there. Another uh, pastor said this, if Paul were to write a letter to the evangelical church today, to the Bible-believing churches of our country, I believe it would be a lot like 1 Corinthians. Their world was like our world. The same thirst for intellectualism, the same permissiveness toward moral standards, the same fascination for the spectacular. And their church was a church like ours, proud, affluent, materialistic, fiercely eager for intellectual and social acceptance by the world, on paper, doctrinally orthodox, but morally and practically, they were conforming to the world. I want to read to you the first 11 verses of Acts 18, because this is the founding of the church at Corinth. Beginning in verse 1 of Acts 18, it reads, After this, he left from Athens and went to Corinth, where he found a Jewish man named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them, and being of the same occupation, stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with preaching the message and solemnly testified to the Jews that the Messiah is Jesus. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he took out his clothes and told them, Your blood is on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of, of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed the Lord along with his whole household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. Then the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So this church that we're looking at, it was relatively young, it seems that uh, it had a large majority of its believers were less than six years uh, old as far as being believers, not in age, but spiritually. 
Some of the members did have the moral and ethical teaching of the Jewish background uh, um, that would cause them to behave in a particular way. And this is what we need to understand. A majority of the believers, of these new believers in the church in Corinth, came out of paganism. So this church was starting from scratch. There was, they didn't have a common vocabulary for communication. How do you communicate the word of God and get them to grow when they have no Bible background at all? If you have a bunch of Jewish believers, they, they know the Old Testament. They already understand there's only one God. They already understand what idols are. They already understand that God is communicated to us. They already understand that God demands holiness in every aspect of life. But when you have a bunch of pagans becoming believers, they don't know that. They don't know any of those things. And so you are truly starting from scratch, especially because they have no moral or ethical basis for thinking about their Christian life. Now, I want us to think about that for a while because this really is very important. And it's not only understanding what's going on here in the church in Corinth, but perhaps, I believe, helping us to understand the church, not only that we are a part of here, but the church in our country. Because more and more individuals who are becoming believers are not coming from backgrounds where they were raised in what we would call a Christian home or maybe even a home where they went to church. So they don't know the things that we don't know. They don't think the way that we think. And so our approach to them has to be very different. When I say that, it's not that we compromise on anything of the Word of God because we don't. But let me give you an example. So back in the 70s, if you had a, a young couple come to church, and let's say that this young couple was, they were new believers, but they were not married. But they were living together. Not only would everyone immediately assume that that was wrong, but they would also assume that that couple also knew it was wrong. And they probably did. It's different today. We could have a couple come and visit our church. They might be brand new believers, unmarried and living together. And they truly have no clue that it's sin. If they even had gone to church a few times in their life, they have, may have never heard that. We live in a culture where that's not frowned upon outside and at times inside the church. And so sometimes what will happen is, is that we might kind of think, wait a minute, there's no way that they don't know this is wrong. Uh, yes, way. They really, there's no conscience of that. It would be news to them that they're living in sin. They might even be stunned or shocked. And the reason why I bring that up is because when it comes to that, we, as those of us especially who have been believers for a long time, and then maybe those of us who are older, who perhaps were raised in Christian homes, we need to make sure that we watch how we respond. We can't respond with just absolute shock. Like, oh, I can't believe that you two are just living in gross immorality. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't point out to them that they're living in sin. But that kind of response isn't going to be helpful. They don't know any better. We have to help them to learn. We have to help them to grow. And so if we don't have the proper attitude and response towards these individuals, then they may say, well, I don't want any part of Christianity. I, they're every, because they're already going to feel this way. Everything they do is wrong, and the way they think is wrong. You'd be amazed at the difference between the way a non-believer thinks and the way we think. And I don't just mean necessarily even in the areas of morality. 
just in the way that we view life, the way that we understand life, the way that we think as individuals should be very different for those of us who are, uh, have been immersed in the Word of God and have been taught the Word of God. I know that uh, if you ever talk to Napoleon about his conversations with many people before he became a believer, there are times he became very frustrated because it seemed, and he's told me this, we talked about this. In fact, when he was non-believer, we talked about it. You know, he would get frustrated because it seemed that everything he said, someone found fault with it. He just couldn't believe it. Like, whatever he said, whether it was philosophy, politically, or theologically, it was just always wrong. And it was, he was getting tired of it. And he was, you know, fighting against that, you know, which is great. Because he was asking questions and he was thinking about things. But you'd be amazed at how different we think as Christians. And so what, when we look back at Corinth and look at the, the problems that this church was having, well, of course they were going to have these problems. It wasn't just because they were in the midst of this very sinful, secular, promiscuous kind of a city. It was because these individuals did not have any kind of a Christian or religiously Jewish background. They didn't come with any understanding of the Old Testament or anything. Even the idea that we often take for granted. One of the things that you may not realize, uh, but you would after you thought about it for a while, when we, when we speak to each other, when we greet visitors, when we go out into the community and just talk to people, we, have a, uh, we tend to, hopefully, have kind of a, a natural respect for other people. We, we treat them rightly. We treat them politely. There's a reason why we do that. We do that because we know all people are created in the image of God. That's why we don't treat people like dogs. Because we know they're better than a dog. Even if they act like an animal, we know that that person was created in the image of God and by that alone means that they are deserving. It is right for us to treat them with a certain amount of respect. There are many individuals who may treat others with respect but have no idea that that's the reason why. The, the pagans don't have a reason for that. The only reason why they believe that you should treat anybody well is because you might be able to get something from them later. You know, I want to butter them up because I want to do a business deal with them later. Or I want this or whatever. Or, or, you know, I know he's kind of crazy. I don't want to shoot me, so I'm going to be nice. So whatever it happens to be. But they're not thinking in, in terms of theology like we would think in terms uh, theologically when it comes to the way that we treat other people. And so all these things have to be learned by these individuals. So it's important for us to remember then that in this church, you have a very large number of individuals who come from pagan backgrounds and what that means. That doesn't just mean that they worship the idols. That's part of it. But all the many things that we take for granted, morally uh, and intellectually and theologically, they don't have that in their background. And so when, when we talk about responding with kindness and patience, uh, that means that we, need to, that we need to kind of bring that to the table and not allow the things they do and say to to be shocking to us, to where we maybe embarrass them. It would be the same way that we might want to treat, maybe you, you meet uh, your neighbor's child and you know what kind of family they come to, and so you have a certain amount of patience and gentleness that you kind of bring to the table because, A, they're a child, and because of their background. Same kind of idea. It's not that we, it's not that we look down on them. It's not that at all. It's just that what we know is that they are ignorant, now, we don't use that in a derogatory way. We wouldn't even use it in speaking to them. But there's just things they don't know. And if they don't know, they're not going to think in the way that we think or know that Christians should behave and act. 
So it's important for us to keep that in mind. Uh, this church, as you know, had a lot of problems. They had factions. There was a case of incest. Uh, they had members suing each other. Uh, there was problems with sexual impurity. And then there was this divisiveness that was taking place uh, within these groups. Uh, common things, because we're human beings, but nonetheless, uh, things that needed to be addressed and things that were not becoming of Christians. So Paul says in verse 1, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Now, we're not really going to get all that far because we need to deal with just, you know, there's really no debate who wrote this letter. Paul wrote the letter. And Paul states here from the beginning that he's called to be an apostle. And some of you may think that there's no need to go through this, but there is. Because we have to ask yourself, what is an apostle? I just, it didn't take me too long to do this. I only did it for a few minutes this week. But I, but I have met a few individuals who call themselves an apostle here in Savannah. So I wondered, how many apostles are there in Savannah? So I looked it up. You can look that kind of stuff up. You have to check different things and whatnot. So I looked at some advertising that churches have, and I looked at some other uh, different kinds of pages that link people together. And there's at least 18 to 24 men and women that, that call themselves apostles. So there, there may be as many as 35 in our city alone. And this isn't a very big town. Apostles. Why in the world would they call themselves an apostle? What is an apostle? We, we need to know the answer to that question um, because there are many people within Christianity who claim that they are apostles for today. Uh, some even claim that they uh, enjoy the, or have the spiritual gift of apostleship. So let me just kind of go through some things quickly. We don't have time to look up all the passages, but, but you can look them up later if you want to. But if you just look at Acts chapter 1, there are certain things we gather from what at least is necessary for an individual to be an apostle. Now, I, I will admit that there are some individuals who may call themselves an apostle because they've been told by someone that an apostle is just a messenger. And so they're kind of using it in that sense. There may be a few who do that. I think most of them understand that the word apostle at least is supposed to carry some kind of weight. Of course, in some churches it's kind of odd because if you read through the Bible, the apostle is, he's first. And, you know, they have, you know, their bishops and ministers and apostles and they're all kind of whatever uh, when it comes to the hierarchy depending on that church. But, but it is meant to be used as a title. And, and because there's maybe only 35, uh, it's not that common. And I think there are those who mean something by that. But when you look at the book of Acts, the one who, let's say, he's the candidate for being considered an apostle. Number one, it was required to be someone who followed Jesus during his entire earthly ministry. So that immediately eliminates a whole lot of people. Uh, but, the, but that individual was someone who followed Jesus during his entire earthly ministry, beginning with the baptism of Jesus by John to his ascension in heaven. Secondly, um, the candidate, the one who wants to be considered an apostle, uh, needs to have seen Jesus after his resurrection. Thirdly, uh, the candidate needed to have been appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it does seem, when you read through the scriptures, that the apostles were granted special, miraculous powers by the Holy Spirit, and they were granted these powers to do miraculous signs to confirm that they, their message, their ministry, was inspired by the Spirit of God. So they had the power to perform miracles, 
Um, they had the capability to confer the ability to work miracles on other individuals. And there's a slew of, 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 of passages where you see that being demonstrated. Jesus referred to his bestowal of miraculous capability on the apostles when he promised them that they would be endued with power from on high in the book of Luke. I, I kind of lean this way. I'm not dogmatic about it. I believe that the apostles uh, were men who probably had most of the spiritual gifts that are listed. Maybe even all, but most, because you see them with several. I also tend to believe that, um, uh, as individuals today, that Christians, that all believers are given one spiritual gift. I think we all have one. Some will say we all have at least one. Some have many. Mm, I, I don't think that's correct, but that's fine. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. But what made these men unique is they had a lot of them, and there's reasons for that. So an apostle was, was obviously a, a very distinct, unique individual. Uh, and, and that part of that was because of what they were to do, the job that they had assigned to them, which we will get into later. But again, an apostle was someone who followed Christ during his earthly ministry. They saw Jesus after the resurrection, and he was personally appointed that office. So the first thing that people think of when you, when you begin to go through that list is, well, now, wait a minute. Uh, Paul was an apostle, clearly, and he didn't follow Jesus from Jesus' baptism until his ascension into heaven. Yet he's clearly an apostle. So maybe that kind of opens the door so that others could say that, oh, I was appointed by Jesus, and they can be apostle as well. Well, I do think that the resounding answer is pretty much no. That's not what that means. Uh, Paul himself describes himself he implies that he is the exception to the rule. Uh, twice in 1 Corinthians, he describes his apostleship in correlation to when Jesus first appeared to him. So he did see the resurrected Savior. And as we know, had the conversation with him uh, when he became a believer. In the second of the descriptions that he gives about himself, he notes that Jesus appeared to him as one untimely born. In other words, it's a phrase that describes one of the primary ways which Paul's apostleship was distinct from the twelve. Paul uses this picture of, of a premature birth, so to speak, to imply that his apostleship was something that came about rather abruptly as opposed to something that had been developed over a long period of time. So we can say that the Twelve underwent the full development of apostolic nurture, being discipled by Christ during his earthly ministry. In contrast, Paul's apostleship came rather suddenly and apart from this process. Now, I do believe there is a period of time that he talks about going into the wilderness. He was gone for a while, and I believe that he was discipled by the Lord during that time. But nonetheless, he is a very unique individual in a unique position, and his apostleship really isn't denied by anybody, even though it is very unique compared to the others. So when you put all that together, the twelve were the twelve in part because they were with Christ from his baptism by John to his ascension in heaven. Christ chose Paul to be an apostle, as we know. Uh, we, we talk about him being the apostle to the Gentiles, apart from this process. Uh, and Paul knew that even his kind of apostleship was out of the ordinary. So again, uh, those four points, apostle, the apostles were the twelve and Paul, who was one that was untimely born. Number two, apostles were those who were sent by the churches for gospel ministry, that they were exclusively doing that. Uh, the apostles were messengers who had a very specific task uh, set before them. And, of course, Jesus is also called an apostle, and he was sent to provide redemption for God's children. So with all of that, sometimes you'll hear individuals then kind of use this kind of 
reasoning or language when it comes to the apostles. There's different divisions, you know, within Christianity and even within churches. And sometimes an individual maybe, let's say you're talking to them or maybe you overhear a conversation where someone's being told, let's say, some kind of moral principle in the Bible. And that individual might, might say, well, Jesus never said that was wrong. And they're serious. What they, what they mean by that is Jesus himself never said that was wrong, as if somehow because Jesus didn't say such and such, that now it's, it's kind of up for grabs and we might be free to do whatever that thing may happen to be. Well, what we do need to remember is, number one, it doesn't matter if the issue, whatever the issue happens to be, is thoroughly discussed in the New Testament. What they're saying is, is the focus is solely on Jesus and only the words of Jesus are important or the words of Jesus are the most important. One of the bad things with the red-letter Bible. Now, if you have a red-letter Bible, it's fine. But one of the bad things with that when it first came out is people began to assume that the words in red were more important than the words in black because the words in red were the ones that Jesus said. That's the ones that we need to focus on. That is an improper approach to Scripture. All of the Bible is the Word of God. Yes, when Jesus was on earth, when he spoke, it's not like when he spoke, letters came out in red, uh, but that, just, that was used as an identifying thing to help people quickly find things in the Bible. Just like having chapters and verses and all of that is to kind of help us to be able to find things or reference things quickly. But sometimes individuals have this idea that, well, it wasn't in red, so I don't have to obey it. Uh, that would be untrue. Uh, and again, the implication of the argument is that the teaching of the apostles do not hold the same weight uh, as the teachings of Jesus. So when Paul brings up here in this letter that he's an apostle, he is doing it to let them know or to remind them that he does have a unique authority. And, and that's important. And, and sometimes the authority of the scripture can be lost today in churches. Well, sometimes we think, whether it's certain sections of the Bible, or maybe it's just the parts that we don't really like, uh, but if there, you know, there are several different issues that Christians kind of struggle with in our country with the Bible, and one of them is the authority of the Bible. The Bible is the authority for our life. It tells us and gives us the truth. So then, if an individual was to say, and we'll pick an area that's easy, if someone says, well, I don't believe that you have to believe in the deity of Christ to be saved, that would be completely wrong. Because what the Bible declares is that he is not only son of God, he is God come in the flesh. That's a non-negotiable. That's not my opinion. It's not anyone else's opinion. It's what the Bible declares and teaches. Therefore, no matter how it sounds to me, it's truth, and I must believe that. And so when we become believers, remember that's well, some of the phrases we use is that we are submitting ourselves to the truth of the word of God. So I submit I, I agree with the scripture, not that it needs my agreement, but I'm agreeing with the scripture that I am a sinner and that I'm separated from God. I agree with the word of God that I cannot earn my salvation in any way, shape, or form. I can never earn points from God where he owes me anything. That salvation is a gift and that I must believe who Jesus is. I must believe in the person and the work of Jesus, that he is God who's come in the flesh, who lived the perfect life, who then uh, laid his life down willingly, to take the punishment for my sin, uh, died, was buried, and rose again, according to the scriptures. And, and if I believe that, the scripture says that I have been adopted. I'm being adopted by God into his family. I believe those things because that's what the scripture clearly teaches. And so I don't have the right to disbelieve that and still call myself a Christian. I'm not a Christian. 
That's where it, sometimes individuals have a difficulty with a debate when it comes, which has been going on now for several decades, when it comes to uh, the discussion about what is a Mormon. Because if you talk to Mormons, there's been, there were a, the change started in the 80s, where they used to, to emphasize that they were not Christian, that they were different. They were the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and now they're kind of morphing that into this idea that they are Christians, that you have Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Mormons, etc. It's just another denomination. But we know that they're not, not because we're arrogant, not because we don't like them, not because we don't want to keep them out of our club, but because they deny what the Scripture teaches. We submit to the authority of the Word of God, period. And so we have a right to make that assertion, that judgment, uh, because it's based on what the Scripture says. So the authority issue is a real big one. And if an individual begins to believe that somehow only the words of Jesus are authoritative and not the words of the apostles, then most of the Bible you have to get rid of. And you're going to have a lot of uh, problems, and you're going to go against what the Word of God says about itself. So again, remember that the apostles... Um, their teaching are not, they're not just giving a commentary on the things that Jesus said. What we have from the apostles is considered to be scripture. Uh, in fact, um, I think you'll find that if you do look at the word of God and read through it, that the apostles and Jesus line up on everything. So let's kind of go through this real quick. Just take about three minutes maybe and, uh, and we'll stop. But when it comes to this, the significance of the apostles' teaching is this. Number one, if you read through 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter calls the writings of Paul scripture. He equates those two together. So it's authoritative in that sense. It's not just the writings of Paul. It's the writings of, of Peter and John that we have in the word of God. But those things are authoritative for our life. And so we are then to submit uh, to those things. We are to study them, to understand them, and submit to what they say. The act of listening to the apostles distinguishes an individual as being someone who follow God. When you read through 1 Corinthians, we'll get to that, which will probably not be this month. Um, it'll be later in the year. But when we get to uh, chapter 14, uh, especially 12 through 14, but in 14 in particular, it mentions that if you are not listening and heeding what the apostles are saying, then you're not listening to God. Now, they're not equating themselves with God, but there's an authority that is there that's been, that's been given to them by God himself. And so authority is a very important thing uh, we need this authority in our lives as Christians. And so what we think about Paul and what we think about an apostle is important. And, I, and I'm assuming that you can tell already as we go through this that these individuals running around our city and all the other cities in, in the world, these individuals who call themselves apostles, they're not apostles. That's, they're, they're, they're not. Now, that doesn't mean that you, if you meet someone who calls themselves an apostle, you give them a lecture the first time you meet them. I do think it would be appropriate if, if it's someone that you continue to, to run into to eventually ask them, why do they call themselves an apostle? And get back into what the scripture says. Because I think it would be a good idea to drop that uh, and maybe use another title if you want one. Um, and of course, the scripture makes it clear in Romans that we will be judged by the teachings of the apostles because, again, that is scripture. So the importance, then, um, of not altering the apostles' teaching uh, is given to us in the word of God. There's no contrast between the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. It is a harmonious unit that brings to us the words of God. And so what we're going to get into next week is, is what the apostle does. And we're going to see that lived out in the life of Paul with the church at Corinth. But it's important for us to see that, once again, uh, so that we're not deceived. Remember that 
there's warnings that Paul gives in the Word of God. He talks about wolves coming in sheep's clothing. And when he gives the warnings, he ta- he's warning primarily about those false teachers that rise up within the church. In other words, from within Christianity, not outside Christianity, but from within Christianity, there are those who will rise up who will seek to draw us away, to draw us away from God, to draw us away to follow them and various things that are associated with that. And so we tend to be, as, as a group, we tend to be, uh, in, in some cases, susceptible to that for all kinds of reasons. It doesn't mean that we're dumb, even though sometimes it might mean that. But, it, but the idea is, is that we need to be very careful because these individuals know how to talk. They know how to use language. They know how to impress individuals. You, you can tell that already because if you ever watched some of the false teachers on TV, you'll notice that they're not exactly speaking to a room of 30 people. They're speaking to groups of 3,000, 5,000, 30,000 people at times. That, that, that deceit is going out wide and deep in the lives of other individuals. And the way that we're going to be protected from that is it's not just by a casual reading of the Word of God, though that's important for us to do. It's by understanding and studying the details. And the details of Paul being an apostle is important. Because if there really was an apostle today, and he was a real apostle. That would be important. Of course, a lot of the Bible would have to be different <laughs> if there was one. But that would be an important thing for us to understand. But because we know the scripture and what it says, and we can understand how someone came about to be an apostle, and even looking at the unique way that Paul became an apostle, and how he proved his apostleship in so many ways, so that it is, there is no doubt that he was an apostle, we then can rest assured that there are no apostles today, and that's important because as long as we have access to this, then we're fine. We have here what God wants us to know. We have here what God's going to use in our life to grow us, to become more like His Son, Christ. The information we need uh, is here. And so, we, I, so I, would never be, I would never be deceived by anyone who calls himself an apostle. Because the moment someone introduced himself to me as an apostle, the one thing I know immediately is they're not. Now, they might be a Christian and they just might be ignorant, but they're not an apostle. And so they can tell me whatever they want. I had an individual once tell me this. He said he was an apostle, and then he began to, uh, what he called, uh, pronounce a prophecy over me about whatever was going to happen you know, in the future. And I just knew this for sure. Didn't matter what he was saying. He was not hearing a word from the Lord, and he was dead wrong. And it just so happens that uh, of the four or five things he said would happen, only one happened, kind of. And so, just no worries. But you'd be amazed. An individual presents himself well. They speak the language. An individual is going through a time of great difficulty. An individual can come along, and they can fool them. They can begin to pull them in with just words. And pretty soon that person becomes a devoted follower of that individual and thinks that person has been anointed by God. And all this false teacher is interested in is getting you to follow them and then to use you for whatever purposes he sees fit, whether it's take advantage of you, get your money, both, whatever. And so we need to be protected in this time. And so this church, this troubled church that we're going to be studying about and this letter that we're going to be uh, looking at is going to help us Number one, to be able to be strengthened ourselves as Christians so that we can continue to remain steadfast and adhere to the gospel, but also to give to us an understanding, hopefully, of each other and understand the backgrounds that we come from. 
and why there will be differences at, at times, not, uh, not only of our opinions, but the way we live our life out. And then the plan of God, the desire of God, is that all of us as individuals continue to read and study the Word of God and collectively submit ourselves to what the Word of God has to say. And if we do that, then the church will continue to be that living organism that God seeks to use to bring the message of the gospel of Christ to the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace in our life and again for this letter that we are about to begin to to, uh, read through and study. We thank you, Father, for Paul and for his unbelievable dedication to you. That regardless, Father, of what others thought about him, regardless, Father, of the threats he received, regardless, Father, of the various attempts on his life, he remained strong and firm in your word and declared a consistent message of the gospel of Christ to all that he met. We pray, Lord, that you would enable us and help us, Father, cause us to be submissive to your word and all that is given to us here in the book of 1 Corinthians. May we, Father, recognize that we, in one sense, really live in a a very similar kind of city, a very similar kind of place that this church lived in. And, Father, even though this church had difficulty and was filled with all types of sinful practices, yet this church was still a light of the gospel of Christ. And it was not viewed by you or by Paul as being an impossible situation. And, Father, we are able, as a body, to stand against the wiles of the devil. We are able to stand against temptation and encourage each other to live for you. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to encourage each other in that way. Again, we thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Once again, let me just remind you that perhaps uh, you've come across a lot of different individuals. You have a very church background. And I want you to know that the most important thing for you when it comes to understanding God is it's not what any church teaches. Even this church. The goal is always to go back to the scripture. What does the word of God say? That's what we stand on. That's what we want want to to go forth with. And so if you have any kind of questions about, so then what is the gospel? So how does someone get saved? Whatever whatever the case may happen to be, whether it's myself or or Tim or, or there's someone here maybe that you know, we're more than happy to explain to you from the word of God what the gospel is and how you can come to know Jesus Christ as your savior. And you can be delivered uh, from this world and have a place for you reserved in heaven.